0: paying attention will notice that we, um, we actually have, yeah, that is not the slide that I used. Um, hmm. Well, that's interesting. Interesting, interesting. Um, so if uh, Eli or Britt, if you guys have your phones, mine does not have the, So we're not going to live stream unless you guys have something. Apparently my app updated or something. So anyway, if you guys haven't want to do it, great. If not, no big deal. Um, So uh, this is not the slide that we um, utilized um, um, like on Facebook and and social media. So Britt and I spoke yesterday and we're talking about um, the slide. She does an awesome job always making the pictures um, for the, the sermon titles and stuff. And um, so we were texting back and forth yesterday morning because, you know, I always give her like, I don't know, 12 hours notice of what the, the teaching topic is going to be so she can get something together. Um, and um, so I texted her yesterday morning and, and she had a wedding that she thank you, Amber, um, and had a wedding that she had to um, uh, to shoot. And so when we were talking, I said, you know what, I'll just take care of it. And I I tried to find a photo that is similar to what. Brit normally uses, which is what I posted on Facebook, not this, just to be clear, in case anybody's confused, uh, not this. Um, so I start. I decided to use um, a picture that I tried to really look and find something that was similar to what Brit would use, and I posted that on Facebook. I really all along wanted to use this, um, but if I'm being totally honest, I was terrified to do that, and Eli, don't forget you'll have to, um, if you've got your screen lock on or it's Harry um, but I wanted to use this picture but I didn't have the um, uh, wherewithal to do that and um, there's a few reasons number one because it's far too Catholic uh, and number two because it, it it's a painting um, and we're actually going to talk a little bit about this painting and what it's about um, as we as we go this morning so Uh, I'm going to read to you some notes. I've got a lot of notes, um, and just deal with it. Um, We're going to talk this morning about Dreamers, and this has nothing whatsoever to do with anything political, nothing whatsoever to do with the title that's been given to um, uh, undocumented children that are in this country. So just if you're waiting for that shoe to drop, the MAGA train has left the building. It is, that's not, we're not going there today. That's not the topic. We're actually talking about, being dreamers um, and what it means for us to be a people that turn loose the next generation to see without boundaries. Um, Einstein actually said that logic will get you from point A to point B, but the capacity or potential of dreams is endless. And um, I really like that idea. We do need to be pragmatic. We do. Need But there's something that happens that comes in that tries to steal what I would call the idealism, the creativity, the drive, the desire that you have. And in my opinion, in most cases, it's probably loss or disappointment when something doesn't work out. Um, You become disappointed because, you know, you really were believing God for some incredible thing and it didn't happen. God spoke to your heart. You were trusting him for it. It didn't work out. And so that outcome begins to affect how you view what he's able to do. And worse than that, it actually begins to affect what we think his character is or who we think he is. Because when God says he is faithful, he is love, he is goodness, it's not talking about. what his demonstrations or actions are. It's talking about who he is. So in the midst of that being who he is, as soon as we have something happen where God in our mind is not faithful or doesn't follow through on what we thought he was going to do, it begins to affect who we think he is. And then the next time he asks us to trust us, we're far less inclined to do so. So I'd like to start with a question this morning, as we have been over the last few weeks. Why does God refer to himself all throughout the Bible as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Has anybody ever asked that question? Maybe you have, I have not. Why is it that all throughout the old Testament and throughout the new Testament, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't refer to Joseph. He doesn't refer to David. He doesn't refer to Moses or Isaiah or Elijah. Um, you know, there are so many individuals. I mean, you think David would be in the mix, man, after God's own heart. Like God's going to pick somebody to be the God of it's that guy. I mean, I don't know if you I don't need to remind you that both Abraham and Isaac were liars. Both of them, both of them on separate occasions told foreign kings that their wives were their sisters. Because they didn't just trust God to lead them. Right. Right. Just being honest here. That's a good way to quiet the room. The first thing to note is that all three of these patriarchs of faith were barren or were, excuse me, in barren marriages. Now, I do need to mention you'll never find anywhere in the Bible where it says a man is sterile. It always says the woman is barren. That's because at the time, it would have not been culturally acceptable to ever put that on the man. So, just so we're clear. It, it, it's not always, uh, it may not always have been that their wives were barren. It wasn't like these guys, you know, they had a one in a million shot and they just kept marrying these barren women, you know, um, it might not have been the shot. Maybe they lived a little too close to Chernobyl and some things weren't working like they should. I'll just stop there. Um. This was before the, the, the beauty of uh, pharmaceuticals, and so I don't know what, what that means. But suffice to say, these uh, the, the primary thing that all these three patriarchs had in common is that all three of them were in barren marriages, um, Abraham being the most famous. The next point is that God ratified the same covenant with all three men, st- uh, stating that through them, all people in all nations would be blessed. So the other thing is, God always says, I'm the God of this isn't where others from the outside are saying this is the God of like, who's this God? Oh, he's the God of this. This is God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus also ratifies this. I think that we missed the point of why, though. There's no holiness that really qualifies them. Abraham was a heathen that believed in mysticism, was not from a chosen people, did not do everything right. Um, Isaac was absolutely, well, look at this, but absolutely um, reserved in his relationship with God, probably based on the fact that the, the interaction he had with God as a kid was being put on an altar. That'll mess you up. How do you feel about God? Well, I'm a little afraid. He makes me a little nervous. Right? Um, And, uh, hey, Dad, we didn't bring a lamb with us. Oh, son, God will provide. What do you mean? Um, And then you have Jacob, whose name is Deceiver. So, like, these are the patriarchs of our faith. So it had to have been more than just their character. It was the fact that God spoke through Abe, to Abraham first, and, and um, what he spoke to him, you find it in Genesis 12 it's, 12. it's not on your sheet, but you can reference it. That through him, all the people of the earth would be blessed. We're going to touch that, but we're not going to go too far because that's going to be probably in our Wrecking Religion series coming up. So. Um, We're we're going to talk a little bit about what that means and why that is. But he kept saying that. And to those three individuals, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he gave this same covenant through you. All the people of the earth are going to be blessed. That's what made them the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so special and why he kept referring to them. It wasn't because they were really, really, really holy. It was because through them he had ratified this covenant that said, because of you guys, the way I bless you guys is the way I'm going to be able to bless everybody else. The point that we have to remember when stating this from Genesis 12, all people in all nations will be blessed because of them. Let me be completely clear. The reason God blessed Abraham and selected Israel as the chosen people was so that all of the people of the earth can be blessed. So anything good God has ever done for his people has ultimately been for the sake of the entire world. Let me be clear. Anything God has ever done good for you is supposed to be for atheists. It's supposed to be for Muslims. It's supposed to be for other. Pick something. Other. But that's what he said. We think, I chose God, I'm in the club, I get to be blessed. God said, I chose you, through you, everything gets blessed. We don't like that. Why? Because I'm the one in the club. It's supposed to be me. I've got lots of cabinets to put all these promises and blessings in. I've got U-Hauls to fill up with all these blessings. But what God said in the initial covenant was, Everybody. Do you realize that three different times in the book of Isaiah, um, God actually says that it's his intention to restore Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, I want to visit Sodom and Gomorrah with my presence and my power and restore them as I intended them to be. My point of that is we have to remember he's far greater Than we've ever given him credit for. He's far more into restoration than we thought. If there was ever a group of people that I would consider lost and nothing you can do. It's the people that God rained down fire and brimstone and devoured the city. God says those people are not without hope. I don't know what you do with that. But Pastor Fabian told me to say it. So. This is the covenant God conveys and ratifies to the three patriarchs. Jesus, Paul, James, um, and John, excuse me, and Peter, all use this language to describe the New Testament work of Jesus. His goal is still healing the nations. His goal is still healing the nations today. Abraham knew God in an amazing way. He was not a part of the chosen group initially. He was in an ungodly country, and God led him out. However, if I can be honest, Abraham brought with him a lot of the cultural mindsets about God that were intrinsic to his home and these other gods. Now, before you think I am Abraham bashing, let me state that we all do this. The reason we packed our bags from the tradition and religion of denominationalism, evangelicalism, and the American postmodern church movement is because we knew there was something more. However, whenever you pack your bags, you bring things with you. Some of these things are good, necessary, and important to who we are, others are much more subtle. They are associated, excuse me, they are as associated to the what. They're not associated to the what, but the why they become these things that get their their hooks and other things about who we think God is and how we think God is allowed to do things. And so we um, it's amazing when you really study. I grew up in the assembly of God and it's amazing to me how much of the assembly of God, which was a charismatic Pentecostal movement denomination. How much of that was actually affected by the Baptist and so many things that we saw that we would not agree with the Baptist about, but yet we would take this whole thing about the Baptist and apply that so much of our teaching um, about the fact that you could at any point lose salvation, which is the reason I got saved three times a month. Right. I've already gotten saved twice this morning. comes from so much of the thing that said you can lose it at any moment. And so we pack our bags from that and bring it with us. So then when we try to talk about, and then when we try to have um, conversations about things, about who God is and what his character is and what his nature is, we still feel like that when he comes in the room, he's there to hit us on the head and correct us for all the junk we've done since the last time we talked to him. And so we follow that trend and we bring when we pack our bags, we bring with us some good stuff and not bad stuff. And Abraham did the exact same thing. Abraham brought with him the uh, the thought that many of the gods that they served were they were angry. So you think about this. Here's a really weird thought. So the most popular sermon ever preached in the history of sermons is a. Um, um, is a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That is the most famous sermon ever preached. It is the most quoted and the most referred to sermon in the history of sermons. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So then when we start saying things like God is good, And God loves you, and he's faithful, and he's going to stand by you. It's no wonder people get confused. It's no wonder I was confused. The God I knew and experienced was not the God I read about and had been told about. And it was one of those big elephants in the room that you're just not supposed to do anything about. Because then the way we would justify it is, well, he is two different things. He's good, and he's faithful, and he's loving to me. As long as I'm right and pure and holy, and then as soon as I sin, he's the angry God again. And we think those that are others get that. In fact, one of the famous things that I, I read recently is uh, this guy said, we, the way we look at Christians as opposed to everybody else is that Christians get Romans and they get Leviticus. get the good God stuff they get the angry God stuff and let me just be clear God is just as good to a Muslim as he is to a Christian God is just as good to an atheist as he is a Protestant a Baptist um, a Lutheran or even a homosexual pastor in the Methodist church he's just as good why because you can't change who God is based on what you do Just deal with it. So we pack our bags and we bring those things with us. And Abraham did exactly the same thing. Abraham brought with him all of the foreign gods. And the fact that those foreign gods were always angry, they were offering. The primary thing is child sacrifice was prominent with all the surrounding religions. In fact, if you want to look at what the number one difference between the children of Israel and their relationship with God and everybody else around them, it was child sacrifice. That is the number one difference. And the reason they gave child sacrifices was to appease the angry gods. So, Eli, if you wouldn't mind turning up the house lights just a little bit, please. Um, So what you find is Abraham packed his bags and brought those with him. And while I do believe that Abraham was a friend of God, there's some thoughts that Abraham brought with him that we need to understand so that we can turn loose the dreamers that come after us to not serve with boundaries that we've served with in the same way that Abraham brought isaac who brought jacob who brought joseph who dreamed so genesis 18 um, is on your sheet let's read this quickly the lord appeared to abraham near the great trees of Mamre when he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day you remember the story abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby when he saw them he hurried to the entrance to his tent to meet them he bowed low to the ground and said if i found favor in your eyes my lord do not pass by your servant Let us bring water and wash your feet, and you can rest under the tree. Let me bring you something to eat, and you can be refreshed and go on your way. In case anybody's curious, this is not the King James. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent with Sarah and said, Quick, get three sias of the finest flour and knead it and make some bread. And then he ran to the herd, selected a choice tender calf, and gave it to the servant and told him to prepare it. He then brought some curds and some milk, and the calf that had been prepared and set it in front of the men, and they ate while he stood off to the side under the tree. They then spoke to him and said, you will soon have a son. Now, this beautiful picture that's over my left shoulder is is a um, painting called. The Holy Trinity, this is actually one of my favorite paintings. I've actually ordered one of these to, uh, not the real thing, uh, but a copy of this to hang in my office as a reminder. Because the thing you find about this painting, first of all, it's fascinating. It was painted by a Russian painter, and the original still hangs in Moscow around the 15th centuries when he painted it. And he painted, um, everything is, is on purpose, and I apologize that the, the quality here is not that good. But if you could see it well, you would find that the Father, um, you find the three, the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you do find that the three are very unique, even in their colors. The Father is dressed in gold, the Son in blue, and the Spirit in green. And in the painting, you will notice that in this area, you see this rectangle that's on the front of the table they're sitting at that small rectangle that is on the front of the table that they're all sitting at. The thing that's interesting about this is that historians tell us that there was something glued there. In fact, the original painting in Moscow still has glue residue on that part of the painting. What they actually teach is that, if, and if you're not, uh, let me back up. This is supposed to be an artistic depiction of what we just read about. Where the three men, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit, this is the first time that you find the Trinity in the scriptures the, um, in, in, in um, uh, um, overt fashion. And this is supposed to be a depiction of that, the three of them sitting and eating at a table. And so this 15th century painter decided that when he did this, he was going to glue something to the front of the table. And I think it's very, very telling what he glued there. They actually teach that what he glued there was a mirror. He glued a small mirror or some reflective item on the front of this table. And the reason he did, well, first of all, let me back up. If any of you know anything about Catholic holy icons, you never are going to find a mirror glued to any of them. That is not allowed. So at some point, somebody took it off. Maybe the painter did himself. We don't know. But at some point, somebody took that off of the painting. What you actually find is that the reason for this was that whoever the observer was when looking at the painting was allowed to see themselves at the table. Whoever the observer was became part of the picture and thusly had a seat at the table the Catholic Church was not happy about this, and so they took that off because they wanted separation between you and the Holy Trinity, of course. But the interesting thing is, it's a very, very telling depiction, and I don't know uh, much about this painter, but he had an incredible tenacity because even in the story, Abraham doesn't sit at the table. In the story, Abraham serves them and stands off under a tree. I would like to simply suggest to you that Abraham, the first— Father of our faith, the patriarch, Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. You are two. Let's all praise the Lord. Left arm, right arm. Right? My first sermon ever, Father Abraham. I would like to suggest to you that while Father Abraham is an, uh, the, the pinnacle of faith, in fact, he was the first of those that walked in faith, the scripture says. We find that in Hebrews. I do believe that Abraham later was known as the friend of God, but I do also believe that he brought with him something from the other religions. And what he brought with him was the thought that God was to be feared and not to be joined at the table. Concept that even when God demonstrated himself as three individuals that ate, I don't know how this happened. Let me be clear. For those of us that have been brought up to say that anything that sounded spiritual or, or, or uh, in any way any type of mysticism was new age, they must have ripped this page out of oh, the Bible. Because this is like the most mystic kind of thing that you find. God shows up in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He sees them as three men, and they eat cheese curds. God is French, apparently. I I didn't really realize this, but God has a thing for cheese. Isn't that weird? But this is what the Bible says. And on a few occasions, in fact, God would show up. And if you remember, he invited Moses and the elders to come up to heaven and he ate with him. I don't know how that works. I don't know what they eat. It's probably if it was Pastor Fabian uh, interpreting this or teaching the sermon, he would say it's Texas de Brazil or Fogo de Chao. Um, in which case, you know, uh, what was probably on that table, that's probably their green or red card that they turn over when they're done with the meat or want more meat. Um, and so. They, this incredible picture happens where God is there dining and he refuses to sit down with them because he's afraid. How many times have we interpreted the fact that God in the room is supposed to be scary? I was taught that God in the room is scary. I'm just being honest. That's how I grew up. The fire of God came to refine me. If there was any sin in my heart, let me just ask you this question. How about communion? The holy table where we come and embrace the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus could kill you if you forgot to repent of everything. And if you just had a little sin, you would just fall asleep. Many are dead, sickly, and some do sleep. Right? Which I just always use that for whenever my sermons are boring. I say, well, they must have taken communion. They had some sin in their life. So the thought becomes for so many of us that God's angry. He's got an issue with me. Thank God for Jesus because when God sees me, he sees me through Jesus. So as long as I stay in line with Jesus, so I bet Jesus is moving. I'm trying to do like one of these, you know. So that God can't see me aside from Jesus, because as soon as he does, he's just going to strike me down, kill me. Now, I'm not I'm not making light of the holiness of God. Please know that my intention is not to say that that there isn't a, a reverence that comes when he comes in the room. But let me just remind you that it was David that said, and I don't know how this works theologically, but it's there. Even if I was in hell. He's with me. Let's walk through our theology just quickly. Who goes to hell? Sinners or godly people? So the sin of your life is so prevalent that you end up in hell. And God's love is there with you. I'm just quoting the scripture. So. Doesn't that kind of mess up that whole thing about when God sees you, he sees you through blood-stained glasses? That's what I was taught. Sees me through the lenses of the cross. You know what? I think we need to start teaching our kids original goodness and stop teaching original sin. I'm not saying that we're not fallen. I'm not saying that we're not with sin. But what I'm saying is we so drill into their head that they're dirty, rotten sinners, and we reinforce it with things like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the dirty, rotten, wretch like me. And and what we're doing is we're emphasizing our character and we're – De emphasizing or we're demeaning his because his goodness character can far overshadow your sin character anyway. So, why in the world, and as if you need to be reminded about it, why do you need to sing about it? I'm well aware. And so, when you see this with Abraham, that sets the stage. That's why the painter put the mirror because you are intended to be at the table even though Abraham didn't join the table. If you study Isaac's life, you find that he was very reserved. In fact, scholars call Isaac the passive patriarch. It's an interesting thing. He is defined as being the ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. That's what most of the scholars say about Isaac. So we know right there he didn't get to be one of the three big names because he was really powerful. Really special. We remember the wild story of his two sons, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob steals the birthright and the blessing and becomes Israel. But as we look closer, I believe we're actually peering into generational legacy the progress of getting closer and closer to God. Abraham refused to sit at the table with the Trinity. He was comfortable with covenant, he was comfortable with service and function, and to a degree with friendship with God. But I find it fascinating. That when James refers to Abraham as being called the friend of God, you never find in the scripture where he's quoting it and God never actually said it. So there was a perception of Abraham as the friend of God that James refers to, but you actually never find God say that all throughout the Bible. And you would never actually find that in the Old Testament, except for one time in Isaiah. And it's when somebody else is talking about Abraham. So I would like to suggest to you that that was God God's intention to be his friend. Abraham was just far more comfortable with obedience and function than friendship. It's just my opinion. You can take that or leave. I believe that from this point you find that Isaac was drastically affected by some of the encounters in his life, and it really shaped his view of God. As I mentioned earlier, maybe being proposed as a sacrifice had something to do with this, but who really knows? Finally, we get to Jacob. He is the first patriarch to be visited by God in a dream. And maybe in some ways, he is the first dreamer. It's the first man in the patriarchal line visited by God in a dream and the first man to dream. In fact, one of my favorite Jason Upton songs is about Jacob's dream. And you read about how Jacob would lay his head down and. Things would begin to happen. The heavens would begin to open up. He would see angels ascending and descending, and all these things are happening. Jacob had an incredible gift. And Jacob, who was born as deceiver or supplanter, ended up becoming Israel, which literally means the man who struggles with God and prevails. Question. What does it mean to, to wrestle with God and win? It's a weird concept, isn't it? Does it mean that, like at the end, you know, just like WWF, you pull out your move, you know, you throw the rock bottom down on him, um, you know, all of a sudden, Roddy Roddy Piper throws a chair in the ring and you <laughs> take him down off the top rope, you know, it's like Andre the Giant, you. ah! sees that he's got God against the ropes and does the Hulk and shrie- you know, Hulk Hogan. I don't know. But I do know that to wrestle God and win must have meant that he prevailed in what it was he was trying to achieve, and what he was trying to achieve was simply re-identification. To be reidentified not any longer as deceiver, but as the one who knew God, In devotion, the one who knew God in passion, the one who would never let go of who God was, I will not let go of you until you bless me. I'm not going to relent until I have hold of what compels me, the passion, the desire that I have to know you. I'm not letting go of you. That's Jacob. And in the wilderness of devotion, he was re-identified from deceiver to the man who wrestled with God and prevailed. What was it about Jacob that empowered a Joseph to dream like he did? I would like to suggest that the same thing in Jacob that was unwilling to settle for a Leah even though she was close to what he was passionate about and drove him to work for another seven years to have Rebecca, whom he truly loved, is what caused him to create an atmosphere that gave such a permission to Joseph to dream wild dreams. You do realize that Jacob served Laban for seven years and ended up with the sister of the woman that he was in love with. he had ended up with something that would produce children and something that was really, really close to what he was passionate about. He committed himself again to never give up until he was actually married to what he get close, and something happens a lot quicker, and we say, well, this is a really good option. In fact, the name Leah means weary. How many times does weariness cause us to say, well, you know, this is, this is close enough. It's related to what I'm in love with. And it's, it's productive. If you look at the story of Jacob and Leah, she was very productive. She had lots of children. But the difference between a Leah and a Rebecca is that Leah is productive, but it's not what he was passionate about. And once you actually become married to what you're passionate about, you become reproductive. Something that remains and is sustained. Because let me remind you, that but for Jacob, staying in pursuit of what he was originally passionate about and giving himself to work again for seven more years, at this point he's 14 years in, then it was several dozen years before Rebecca actually could conceive. But for him doing that, the entire tribe of Israel would have been wiped out because it was Joseph that provided food when they were starving to death. Joseph was the firstborn son of Rebekah. without Jacob's tenacity to recommit his heart to not give up and to say, I'm not letting go until I have what I'm hungry for and what I have to have the passion, the desire to have. We wouldn't have the children of Israel. We wouldn't have Jacob having Joseph who down the line had Jesus. This story is replete with lessons for us. First off, how many times have we been willing to settle for something close to what we are passionate about? And honestly, I think that the weariness factor is a factor. I really do genuinely believe that what will happen is loss and disappointment will come in and say this is good enough. This is far enough because vulnerability to commit myself to go deeper is too hard. I have to open myself and surrender this deep thing again, and it's too hard. I've already been hurt. I've already been rejected. I've already seen it not work. I've already felt failure. I've already all these things. But to say I'm not giving up until I have him, not something that looks like him, not something that is a package he comes in, not something that is success, not something that is because believe me, Leah was producing children in the same way churches like to produce members. Or do we want passion? Do we want to grow and have this wonderful multiple campuses and multiple churches and, and, and some reputation of being in ministry, whatever in the world that means? Or do we want a place where we can absolutely run harder than we've ever run before, fall on our face, not feel shame, get up and run harder than we've ever felt before? That's the idea. How do we live absolutely obsessed with the passion of I've got to get close, and when the question is how close, the answer is always closer. That's the challenge for us. That's the thing. It really is this thing that we can become satisfied by, all of these other things. But devotion and proximity to him will never, ever be a box you can check. That's the hardest thing. Devotion and proximity, closeness to God, will never be a box we can check off. It just isn't. So, what does that do to the American postmodern church? It messes us up because we like benchmarks. We like growth, pr- growth plans. We like success models. Do you realize that there are 17 thriving church models in America today and none of them are based on the Bible? Every single one of the 17 thriving church models are based on businesses, business and corporation models for how you grow. When we model our church and how we do things closer to Hardys than we do the book of Acts, there is a problem. It is not something you can say, since I'm closer than I was, I must have arrived. There is no arrive. There's only closer. The question for us will always be, how close can I come? The answer will always be closer. Because done well, every encounter with him is intended to produce a new capacity of hunger. I'm going to say that again. Done well, every encounter with him is intended to produce a new capacity of hunger. The life of the spirit is the only thing where the more you eat, the hungrier you get. Every other thing in life you eat, you get full, your hunger is satiated. The life of the spirit is the only thing that separation from substance actually causes you to lose hunger. And so what happens is, as we get hungrier and hungrier not based on the absence of food, but rather based on the degree of eating we partake in. Our passions, our dreams, and our desires are what will ultimately then produce a Joseph that will be used by God to rescue the sons of Leah that have persecuted him. Let me be clear. To rescue the sons of Leah that have persecuted Joseph. We, we got it. I mean, let's just walk it out here. You do realize that the purpose of the next generation is, The sons of Jacob, Joseph, is to rescue the sons of Leah that have probably rejected Joseph. It's going to be our job to feed the people that threw us in a pit. It's going to be our job appeal for revival to visit places that rejected us because of our passion for revival it's going to be our job to absolutely cry out and stand alongside of the people that try to sell us into slavery even in the midst of that because God gives us and pours out and it has to be our passion that says God I want you to come and I don't care where you come made it a point that at least three times a uh, a week I drive around the Catholic churches here, or two of them, and pray for revival. Because if God caused a visitation to come in St. Paul's, it would affect the community. If revival hit St. Paul's Catholic Church, it would mess things up. We need that. And I'm not asking them to get saved first. Because I've given up on the idea that they need saved in the first place. That's his business, not mine. It's just not my business. It's just not my business. What if God all of a sudden decided to bring revival to the Islam temple on the way to Plainfield? I'm serious. That's his business. Would that mess with you? Yeah. (laughs) Would it mess with me? Yeah. But would I want to get in the parking lot and on my face? Yeah. I mean, how do, what are we going to do? What do we think it means when it says his glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Do we think that that means that everybody's got to come in here and pray the Romans road with us first? Do we think they have to visit heaven's gates, hell's flames, come to the altar, repeat the prayer after me, which, oh, by the way, you want to talk about things we've brought with us when we packed our bags. A sinner's prayer is one of them. You never find it in the Bible. You never find anyone telling someone to repeat a prayer after them. It was always a mandate, know the Lord, find him, and speak to that thing that's stirring inside of them that's bigger than a prayer, and it's bigger than a scripture reciting, and it's bigger than any other denomination or thought or group or corporation that we can belong to. That kind of thing is what's going to change the world, and the Bible says this is what caused Joseph to dream. This is what caused him. That father, I I, I have to remind you of this. You do realize that the thing that actually caused Joseph to be persecuted in the first place wasn't wasn't the nature of his dreams. It said it was the passion of his father. I always thought that the thing that, scripturally, that the thing that caused Joseph to be thrown in the pit was because of the dreams and telling the brothers, you're going to bow down before me and all that stuff. It says very clearly what caused them to hate him the devotion of his father. There was something about Joseph because he was birthed out of what Jacob was really passionate about that caused the fury of Jacob's love to be unquenched for him. That thing is the affirmation that causes people to be able to dream the way Joseph could dream. The affirmation of your father that says, you never ever have to be afraid of getting it wrong that is what the patriarchal line was all the way through joseph so the question i'd like to ask you this morning is is there a place of beloved identity that doesn't reason the question how far can i go but only answers farther Boundaryless fathers can develop children that don't have to ignore or unlearn the boundaries. I say that again. Boundaryless fathers are then given permission to develop children who never have to ignore or unlearn the boundaries. They literally don't understand the concept of boundaries. They don't have to be told God loves you even when you've made a mistake. That boundary was never put in place in their mind for them to have to unlearn. They never have to be told in the midst of these things that, well, that's a little bit too weird. You should back off or you're not supposed to pray for that person because they're too sick. You know, or that's inappropriate. or You shouldn't be spiritual at this moment. It's not that they have to unlearn that because us as fathers, us as mothers, us as those that are going ahead can actually begin to ignore and unlearn the boundaries that we've been told that God has. Our children don't have to ever know they were there in the first place. I have huge dreams. My dreams are 23 And 19, and 4, and 5, and 6 years old. And because those are my dreams, I don't have to hurry. Because I'm giving my life to be a foundation that doesn't have boundaries, that breaks off boundaries so that as they grow up, they never have to break off boundaries. They don't even understand the concept that there could be boundaries. That's the call. How can we do that and father them in that way to where Joseph could have the tenacity to tell his brothers they were going to bow at his feet? You want to know why he could dream that wild? Because he had a father that was absolutely obsessively in love with him and did not put upon him anything to hold back. It was just the most obvious thing in the world. Do you realize right now that we're raising a generation, maybe the first generation ever, that the first generation, Characteristic of who God is is goodness. This is now alive, in my opinion, the first generation ever that's going to be developed in an atmosphere where the first characteristic of the nature of God that they think about is good. They don't have to fear God like I feared God. They're not afraid of Him the way I'm af- I was afraid of Him, and still Him in some ways. They're, they don't have to fear God. Falling like I have feared falling. They're not going to grow up getting saved six times a week like I grew up getting saved six times a week. Why? Because they're not in fear that if there's some unrepentant sin in the crevices of their heart that Jesus is going to come back and they're going to burn. They're not knowing that fear. That is the idea of what God is allowing. And that's the patriarchal line where we can actually look and say, there's a mirror at the table because you belong there with your father. There's a mirror at the table because every time you see the table where he's seated, the purpose for that table is not for him to judge you. That is not a table with a gavel on it. That's a table with bread and wine for you to fellowship and commune. This is going to be the first generation that knows him first as the affirmer and not as the judge. This is going to be the generation that thinks of God in his primary word is yes, not no. Or further than no, how about no? And guess what I have to do to you because you did anyway. That's the God I grew up with. Not because he was that just because that's what I was told he was. This is the first generation of kids that don't feel like the Holy Spirit's going to leave the room because they have on a ball cap in the sanctuary. This is the first generation of kids who are going to be absolutely unintimidated to walk through a cancer ward and lay hands on people having no question about the fact that their father's going to raise them up. That's what we're talking talking about the literal kids. We're talking about those that are God sending in because they're learning him without boundaries. They're learning him as the father that calls them beloved. I might have been Jacob that had to wrestle to be re-identified in the midst of the wilderness, but because I have found devotion, I can actually allow the kids that come after us to inherit that thought of beloved never knowing anything different. That's the goal. Boundaryless fathers can develop children that don't have to ignore or unlearn the boundaries. They literally don't understand the concept. If you can learn to ignore and push past the line where religion says this far and no farther, then our children will be taught in an environment where those lines never existed in the first place. I'd like to close with a story. Oh, I, I need to say this first. Sorry, that was my first fake close, just in, yeah. for keeping tally. Yep, I get I get one more. Um, hmm. He's looking for a people whose hunger for him alone exceeds their hunger for his purpose to be fulfilled in them. I'm going to say that again. He's looking for a people whose hunger for him alone exceeds their desire for his purpose to be fulfilled in them. What has happened is, in the purpose-driven movement, we have become very, very, very conscious of what we get to do, what we get done. Personal destiny has become our obsession when our obsession was always supposed to be generational legacy. That he wants to do He can take as long as he wants to do Because I want it done right And if my entire life Pastor Fabian and I were talking about this the other day If my entire life means I'm a foundation That exists beneath the surface So that the house can be built well upon it I'm willing to be that That's what it has to be our gifts. Yes, he wants our functions and our service. But if it comes disconnected from our heart, then it is simply a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. How wildly we dream actually communicates how deeply we know we are loved. I'm going to say that again. How wildly we dream actually communicates how deeply we know we're loved. So it becomes our job and responsibility to affirm and love wildly those around us and those that are coming up so that they can dream past what I was able to dream. Because I don't want the lack of me being what I was supposed to be as the father Jacob that put a coat of many colors upon the ones that I love to in some way prohibit them from dreaming wildly just because it's not the same dream I had. Jacob looked at Joseph, who dreamed differently than what he dreamed, and told him to dream further. Can this next generation be the one that starts with original goodness rather than original sin? If the beginning becomes original goodness, then what can the middle and the end point become? With this, can possessing an inherent inherent, capacity for goodness, truth, mercy, righteousness, and beauty become the perpetual movement? where from generation to generation to generation to generation, his mercy is revealed. Um, I'm going to read you a story really quickly. This is a story from uh, um, a book called Furious Love um, by one of my heroes, a man named Brennan Manning. Um, And um, he writes this story. He was actually a teacher at Oxford back in the 60s. And um, this is a a story of one of his students. It's short. I, I This is from the book The Furious Longing of God, or The Furious Love of God. <clears throat> Brennan Manning had a student named Larry Mullaney. Larry Mullaney was um, uh, a hippie by all rights. In fact, uh, it, it indicates that other parts in the book, when he first showed up in Brennan Manning's um, theology class, uh, he wore. A shirt that Brennan Manning described looks like he'd been wearing it since the Spanish-American War. Um, he had pants that were ravaged with holes. He hadn't combed his hair in, in weeks. He had an acne-ridden face. And according to Larry Mullaney, when he looked at himself every morning in the mirror, he would spit at what he saw looking back at him because he hated himself so much. There was nobody that wanted anything to do with him. He wasn't allowed to be part of any of the Greek societies. He had never had a girlfriend. In fact, he couldn't even recount if he'd ever had a friend. And on his first meeting of Brennan Manning in his theology class, he walks in and he tells Brennan Manning that he's an atheist. And Brennan Manning says, well, I'm Brennan Manning. It's nice to meet you. And the story is that shortly after this, in fact, a few weeks, Larry went home for Christmas And he found himself in his parents' house uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. Larry's father is a typical lace-curtain Irishman. Now, there are lace-curtain Irish and there are shanty Irish. A lace-curtain Irishman never, even on the hottest days of summer, will not come to the dining room table without wearing a suit, usually a dark pinstripe, starched white shirt, and a tie swollen at the top. He will never allow his sideburns to grow to the top of his ears, and he always speaks in a low, subdued voice. Well, Larry comes to the dining table that first night home for Christmas, smelling like a billy goat. He and his father have the usual number of quarrels and reconciliations and thus begin a typical vacation in the Mulaney household. Several nights later, Larry tells his father that he's got to get back to school the next day. And he said, what time, son? He said, six o'clock. He said, well, Larry, I'll ride the bus with you. On the next morning, the father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus, and as Larry has to go to catch the second one to get to the airport, directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work at the same textile factory as Larry's father. They begin making loud and degrading remarks to Larry, yelling across the street, oink, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, if that slob was my kid, he'd be out of the door so fast, he'd think he was on horseback. Hey, pig, why don't you give us an oink? The brutal attacks continued. And Larry Mulaney told me that for a moment, or excuse me, in that moment, for the first time in his life, his father reached out and embraced him. He kissed him on the lips. mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I'm so proud that you're my son. It would be hard to describe the words of that transformation that took place in Larry Mullaney, but I'll try. He came back to school and remained a hippie, but he cleaned up. Miracle of miracles, Larry actually got a girlfriend. And to top it off, he became president Of one of our fraternities, by the way, he was the first student in the history of that university to graduate with a 4.2 grade point average. He was brilliant. Larry came in my office after his Christmas vacation with his father, and he said, please tell me about this man you call Jesus. And for the next six weeks and half hour increments, I shared with Larry what the Holy Spirit had revealed to me about Jesus. And at the end of those six weeks, Larry said, okay heart to the lord and he was in 1974 ordained as a priest in the diocese of providence rhode island he actually spent 20 years as a missionary to south africa a man so totally sold out to jesus brennan manning says do you know why this is not because of weeks sitting in brennan manning's office or classroom talking about jesus no it was because of a day long ago during a christmas vacation standing at a bus stop when his well-to-do lace-curtain father healed him. His father healed him. His father had the guts to get out of the foxhole and choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes and saw his son, his son that would never have to do anything whatsoever to gain his approval because he already possessed it. love and change the entire direction of his son's life that's our father the love of a father that we get to model and in the midst of that we have the opportunity to have kids to have people around us that know that kind of affirmation in every measurable sense, Larry Mullaney was a failure in comparison to his father. In every measurable sense, he was not what his father had maybe hoped for. But in that moment, in the face of that kind of attack, his father affirmed him as being exactly what he was supposed to be, his son. That's our father. Responsibility in the midst of these days because I'm here to tell you. No, I'm not. I hate when people say that. I'm not here just to tell you this. I want to tell you that despite what you've been told by Tim LaHaye and by um, various, various other people on television, these are not the last. sorry, these are not the last days. They're closer than they were. But these are not the last days. And the very easy way to know that is to look at the church and see if she looks like a pure spotless bride. So unless we think that Jesus is going to have to lay hands on her when he comes back to heal her from the broken mess that she is, these are not the last days think that God judges when he sends Jesus to get us because of how bad and dark the world is then you think evil has far more control on God's plan than it actually does evil does not dictate God in any way shape or form he is completely and totally ignoring its existence he is demonstrating light on a daily basis and we get to see ones that go after us that will be dreaming beyond what we could dream that will not see lines, but it is our responsibility in the face of everything that happens around us to kiss them on the lips and say, if I had 200 years to thank God for you, it wouldn't be long enough. To remind them that I don't want them to have to fight what I have fought. To remind them that there is a God who the first thing he is to you is a good father. There is a God who's not angry. There's a God who's not irritated. There's a God who's not frustrated. That doesn't need to be satiated by some sacrifice that you can give him, but that absolutely is furiously running after you. And one of the things we need to see, even the example of the Emmaus Road, is that the two disciples who are so frustrated because Jesus died and the end is near. Everything's over with. And Jesus walks with them away from the temple. What's the point? Jesus will walk with these people and with us even when we're walking away from him. Even in the days where we run from him, he walks with us. But we get to actually see a people whose I spent my life in moments of sin running from God. We're getting to teach our kids that those are the best moments to run to him. know what it's like to run from him even in the moments of their greatest shame because they're going to know him as the affirming father that he is and in that moment the only thing that matters is goodness and that goodness calls them to run towards him always so father we thank you for this we thank you for what this means for us we thank you that you have you have given us a seat at the table. We thank you that the table is far bigger than we possibly have ever imagined. We thank you that there are people at the table that we don't necessarily think maybe even belong there. We thank you that this table is something that you invite us to, not to correct us, not to tell us how we've made mistakes, not to tell us that we're not doing it right, but simply to look into our eyes and invite us to eat of who you are and your goodness, knowing that is the only element of change we need. And Father, we ask you that you would cause this to be done well. Help, Father, those of us that are intended to be foundations, that we would be stable and sturdy, and that like a good foundation, we would take the time necessary to slow down And build well and make sure that is solid before we try to build up upon it. That, Father, as the walls are put in place, as the the beams and, and joists are put in place that support the structure overall, Father, we ask you that you would help us to be those that are willing to pay whatever price necessary, that it's done right so that the house can be built well help us father that when we see those around us when we see those in this house and outside of it that we would see it with the same love that you see us even in the midst of even in the midst of this thing where we tend to think this is in this is out this is good this is bad that father you literally look and say i am a good father to this all help us to see with those eyes we thank you And we love you for your love. That is the fuel. That is the reference. And we ask you to help us to live well in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless everybody. And have a great rest of your Sunday. Please make sure to hug on the necks uh, of the Arroyos as they're going to be leaving us this afternoon. And they uh, want to meet all of you. And say bye to all of you. And, and um, I don't know, I think Pastor Fabian might even have a prophetic word for each of you. Who knows what's going to happen? It has to be unique. All right, everybody have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.gov.